the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. Thank you for joining us tonight, this Sunday evening. We're going to talk about law enforcement in the state of Ohio, and to talk to us about it tonight is Ohio State Auditor David Yost, uh, who's also a candidate for Ohio Attorney General. The Auditor Yost, thank you for joining us tonight. Good to be with you, Nick. Good to be with you as well. Um, yeah, tell us about uh, what's going on with the state auditor's office, and uh, we'll get right to what is the connection between doing what you do at the auditor's office and the attorney general's office? How how do they sort of stack up? Well, you can think of the auditor's state's office as the chief compliance officer for state and local governments. Uh, we not only audit the financial books, but we also uh, examine the controls and uh, look and see whether governments are following the, the law and make determinations on that. And uh, sometimes when we find things that are not right, we also do investigations and, and fight public corruption. And uh, in truth, uh, uh, so far during my term, uh, we uh, have helped uh, create, uh, to create 170 criminally convicted uh, public officials and cronies uh, or for people that couldn't be trusted with your money or your public business. Wow. Well, that, uh, they're still out there. You would think people getting into public service would realize not to steal money from, from the government or from other people, but um, that, that's something that requires constant vigilance, I assume. You know, you're right. Uh, and the fact of the matter is, very few of our public employees actually steal uh, as a percentage. Um, but uh, the work is really important because uh, public integrity is uh, the, the watchword. We uh, mm -hmm. need to have a rigorous audit function uh, so that we deter the people that might be tempted. You know, dealing with the, uh, the various governments, uh, what types of governments do you work with? I know it's municipal governments, school districts. Are, are there any other types of governments that the auditor actually has jurisdiction to go in and look at their books? Yeah, Nick, basically anybody uh, that's getting tax dollars. So mm -hmm. uh, public universities, colleges, townships, counties, cities, villages, cemetery districts, solid waste districts, uh, park districts, uh, you name it, if it's an Ohio uh, layer of government getting tax dollars, uh, our office interfaces with them and uh, is required by law uh, to audit. Okay, can't, can't hear you there now. Are you there? Uh, yeah, I'm right here. I'm oh, sorry. okay. Did we fade out? No, it sort of faded out there, but we're talking about auditing these various um, these various government agencies and public agencies that receive money. 
The, uh, before we go further, let's talk a little bit about your background. For those who don't know you, uh, David Yost, uh, you're from Delaware County, and tell us about your background. Well, Nick, I, I uh, went to a small high school, 165 people or so uh, in my graduating class out in the country, Big Walnut High School. And, uh, you know, after I went to the Ohio State University for undergrad, we uh, moved back, uh, my bride and I, and we raised our family in Delaware County. Uh, eventually, I went to law school and uh, practiced law at, uh, in the hometown there uh, before becoming county auditor and then uh, served eight years as county prosecutor uh, before becoming state auditor. We had three lovely children, uh, all grown, they live in the area, and three uh, beautiful grandchildren. And with getting into state politics, how was that transition? You know, it was, uh, I, I would never go back, I would never regret uh, the decision to do it, uh, but I'll tell you what, it was eye-opening. Uh, the uh, politics at the state level are, are very different than uh, the county courthouse. And uh, somebody asked me once, well, what's the difference between you know running at the county level and running at the state level? I said, well, when you're running back home, you go to you know to the grocery store, run into people that you represent, and if somebody's mad at you, they'll come up and say, Dave, I think you got this wrong. I'm just pretty mad at you for for the decision you made. And uh, in uh, down at the state house, somebody's mad at you. They come up to you, put their arm around you, and say, "Boy, you're doing great. Yeah, you're oh, great. Be president." <laughs> well, welcome to state. Uh, but uh, yeah. so, when did you run your first statewide campaign? Uh, 2009 and 10. So that, that puts us eight uh, eight years ago already. Now, um, now tell us about the attorney general race. When did you decide to run for that? So I was actually running for attorney general in 2009 uh, against Richard Cordray. I was trying to secure the Republican nomination, and uh, a guy named Mike DeWine decided that he ought to be the Republican nominee and got in the race. So uh, we duped it out for a while, and uh, then John Kasich tapped the auditor of state, Mary Taylor, to be his running mate. And uh, a number of people came to me and said, look, this auditor's job is important. It's on the enforcement board. Uh, we need you to step up. Would you consider being our nominee for auditor of state and uh, you know, not having a, a primary against Mike DeWine and you know talked about it with my family spent several days in, in prayer and consultation and uh, ultimately decided that that was the way I should go but I always kind of had in the back of my mind that I'd like to be the chief law officer of Ohio and uh, you know now I'm uh, 34 days away from uh, from realizing that dream well, as chief law officer, as the attorney general, um, again, for those uh, listening who aren't quite sure what is the full uh, ex expansive, I suppose, responsibilities of the attorney general, what what all do you cover? 
so a lot of people call the attorney general the top cop. Uh, that's a little bit of a mis- misnomer because you know you're not a police officer; you can't arrest anybody. Uh, but you run the uh, police officers training academy. You run uh, the Bureau of Criminal in- uh, Investigation and Identification, uh, and which supports almost all of the county prosecutors' offices and law enforcement agencies in the state. Uh, you uh, serve as special counsel to prosecute cases for local prosecutors uh, who request somebody from outside to come in. Uh, and then you're the, also the lawyer for the state of Ohio, uh, 11.6 million people. And uh, I, I, it's a big, big job. 1,600 people work in that office, and uh, I can't wait to get to work. So that uh, beside criminal, you're also doing some civil stuff too. Is that right? Absolutely, uh, it's uh, almost equal um, between the two sides uh, in terms of what you do. Yeah, some years ago we served as special counsel and got involved in uh, tax cases and and those kinds of things on behalf of the state. So I know that uh, yeah, there's there's never going to be a shortage of work for the attorney general's office to get done. I, I'm sure. <laughs> That's right. So. But uh, as you ran for a state auditor and you're running for the uh, attorney general now for the state, uh, 88 counties in Ohio, have you managed to get to all the counties, or how daunting is that? Oh, sure. I've, I've been to every county in Ohio several times over. You know, as we're, uh, we're talking about the, uh, the different uh, counties with different constituencies and different issues, do you find there's a wide variety of concerns that they have um, that that just lay them out in front of what the attorney general is going to have to deal with? Oh, sure. Uh, the Ohio is a microcosm of the United States, I and mean, you can find uh, you know a, a big East Coast cities like Cleveland. Uh, there, you've got uh, what. You know, some people think it's a kind of a southern-style city in Cincinnati. You've got a uh, new urban uh, center in, in Columbus. Uh, you've got rich countryside with you know, deep agricultural uh, traditions. Uh, you've got excerpts. You've got high-tech. You've got uh, uh, all kinds of different uh, socioeconomic, racial uh, demographics. Uh, it really is uh, a diverse state and full of wonderful people. Well, uh, uh, but as you might ahead. think, the, the needs change uh, depending on where you are and what's important uh, in, say, Mercer County, where uh, uh, Grand Lake St. Mary's is with an algae bloom and, uh, say, Jefferson County, Ohio, where Steubenville is and some of the uh, you know economic base is deteriorated. Um, you know, very different kinds of questions, very different kinds of needs. And well, let's let's take a let's take a short break. Yeah, Dave, we can take a short break. We're going to come back. We're talking to Ohio State Auditor Dave Yost, and we're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips on the Advocate here on WHK. Don't go away. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. Tonight we're talking to Ohio State Auditor David Yost, uh, who is also a candidate for the Ohio Attorney General's Office in this year's election. And 
Uh, Auditor Yost, thank you so much for joining us. It's wonderful to be with you tonight, Nick. Good, good, good to have you and find out what's going on in o- Ohio. We've been talking in the last segment of uh, all the differences in the different counties in the state, 88 counties and 88 different constituencies. Um, what what are the people concerned with when you're talking to them out there that uh, impact the Attorney General's office? Well, they're, they're most worried about the opiate, opioid epidemic. You know, uh, the overdoses uh, reached yet another record last year, and uh, those numbers just came out a week or so ago. And there's not a, uh, there's not a community, a neighborhood, a family, a workplace that hasn't had some kind of uh, connection uh, to this crisis. Uh, and people are worried about it. Uh, so I, I get a lot of lot of folks asking me about it and telling their stories, uh, often just heartbreaking uh, tales of uh, promising young wives that are, are just snuffed out by this terrible disease of addiction. Yeah, I was talking to some people involved in programs to uh, help uh, combat the the addiction problem, and uh, mm-hmm. they've, they've been around for several years. And one thing I noted is that, like you just mentioned, the numbers are not going down. Uh, the numbers are still with us. Uh, and I understand even in 2018, we still have those numbers hanging up there. Uh, wh- what do you think is the best way to attack this problem? Well, to, to start with, we have to realize there's not a way to attack it. Um, we're going to have to do a lot of things, some things differently. We've got we've to think about this thing differently. Let me give you an example of what I mean. In Ohio, current, under current law, the possession of uh, less than 10 unit doses, 10 doses of heroin, is a fifth degree felony, punishable by theoretically up to one year in uh, prison. Now, if you're trafficking, if you're selling dope, and it's fewer than 10 doses, it's a felony of the fifth degree, punishable by up to one year. Now, that just doesn't make any sense. What creates the bigger harm to our society? Somebody that's an addict who's using heroin, or someone who's selling it, and perhaps creating new addicts? Obviously, the... the, uh, the dealer is the more dangerous uh, person to society. Uh, so we've got to go through our criminal code and make sense of it. Uh, one of the things that I advocate is that if an addiction should not be a felony status offense in Ohio. Um, so I would like to see the legislature create a, uh, a personal use exemption that if you, are, if you have fewer than three doses of a controlled substance, it's not a felony. It's a misdemeanor. It's treated like drunk driving. Uh, and let's uh, let, let's get those people into treatment, not into a jail bed or a prison bed. Uh, but on the other hand, let's let's slam the door on the drug dealer because once you're in prison, you don't make any new drug deals. You don't make any new drug addicts. But we're not going to arrest our way out of this. Everybody knows that. We can, arrest is part of it. Crime and criminal punishment is part of it. Uh, but it's not enough. 
So when you look at treatment, we've got to rationalize how we're spending the money. Right now, we don't really we don't really collect good data statewide to know which kind of treatment modalities work the best. There's theoretical research out there, but we don't know who in Ohio, apples to apples, does a better job or what kinds of processes are the best. Uh, ideally, the money would follow that and prioritize the stuff that works better. Uh, you can be anywhere from 1% to you know, mid-30s effective, depending on what you're doing and how you're doing it. So uh, we, we need to reprioritize how we spend. Um, but the truth of the matter is we're not going to uh, treat our way out of this either. Uh, it turns out that uh, three out of four heroin addicts uh, will relapse within six months of completing a 30-day inpatient treatment program. Uh, those just aren't great numbers. We've got to we've got to knock down the, the prevention and have fewer new addicts before we're ever going to get a handle on this. Is, is there any prevailing theory as to why the heroin and fentanyl addictions are on the rise? Uh, is it all or a good portion of it dealing with uh, people who started out prescription drugs and transferred over yeah, to the street 80%. drugs? The National Institute for Drug Abuse says that 80% of all uh, heroin addictions started with a medical uh, prescription for a painkiller like oxycodone. Um, and what happens is people get hooked on this stuff. Eventually their doc cuts them off, and so they go out looking for a way to, to feed their habit. And heroin and the frequently fentanyl-laced heroin uh, becomes... The, well, when I was prosecutor, we used to call it the poor man's hair, uh, oxycontin, the poor man's oxycontin. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, well, thinking about... You know, I should oh, mention... Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, just, just before we run out of time here, I'd like to mention that there is a, a horrible idea on the ballot uh, this fall called Issue 1. And what it would do is it would treat... Uh, it would treat significant drug possession as a less serious offense of drunk driving. If you had really? up to, uh, if you had 50 or less balloons of heroin, it's a misdemeanor with mandatory probation. And they're putting that in our Constitution. We've got to vote no on issue one. Now, who, what's the rationale for pushing that? Uh, the, the advocates for issue one, then, with what you just said, uh, what <clears throat> what is their rationale for for allowing such a thing? Well, they want to push money into treatment mm-hmm. away from uh, enforcement, which you know sounds logical until you get down to the de- in, into the details. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, if you've got uh, forty nine balloons of heroin in your product uh, pocket. You're not a user. You're a, you're a dealer, and we just didn't see you making the sale. Nobody has that uh, kind of uh, uh, that amount of drugs on them for their own use. You know why? Because a junkie, an addict that has that much uh, uh, that much heroin on them, is going to be dead. They keep using it mm-hmm. until they mm-hmm. run out or they overdose, and. Uh, 
I'm sure that you could point me to somebody that didn't do that, but that's the that's the norm. Sure. And uh, this just goes too far, too fast, and it sets it in stone in the state constitution. It's a terrible idea, and virtually every judge, prosecutor, cop uh, in the state is out there sounding the alarm about it. Oh, wonderful! Well, it's a constitutional change, which yeah, you're right, is so hard to unchange. And uh, then do you think that uh, traffickers would make sure they're always carrying less than 50? Well, of course they would. We're giving them a huge incentive to do that. It would give Ohio the most liberal drug laws uh, in the United States. And if you're a dealer in, you know, for, for uh, Michigan or Indiana or, or, or Pennsylvania, the place to go is Ohio. Just go over the border a little bit. Uh, and uh, it's a terrible, terrible thing. Now, the, the proponents are going to say, well, it specifically exempts trafficking. Yeah, I, I, to me, we don't always get the traffickers in the act. We don't always catch them selling this stuff. That's right. And a lot of the people that are in prison mm-hmm. on possession charges mm-hmm. are drug dealers who we just didn't get them selling it, but we got them on possession. That's why we need to keep these things felony. Why I want to just uh, make a personal exemption under three doses. Okay, fine. We're not putting you in prison. But if you've got more than that, we're not buying this personal personal use stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, something has to be done. The uh, the number of deaths in families, and we see it at all economic strata. It's not just one. So, my goodness. Well, good luck with the uh, the campaign and, and touring beautiful Ohio in the autumn here. Uh, may the, may the uh, voting day come quickly for you. Nick, I love this state. It's wonderful to be going around and, and reacquainting myself with every corner of the state and, and seeing old friends in you. Well said, well said. Well, good luck to you, and thank you for joining us tonight, and drive safe. My great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was David Yost. He's the auditor of the state of Ohio, running for attorney general in the state. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips on The Advocate here on WHK. Don't go away. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. In the next two segments, we're going to be talking about uh, issues that uh, really and truly uh, reach global proportions. And with us to talk about that tonight is Dr. Paul Seitz. Um, Dr. Seitz, thank you for joining us. Hi, Nick. It's great to be on your program. Thank you for, for being on. Where are you calling from tonight? Uh, today I'm in California attending the Global Climate Action Summit. Uh, well, excellent, because uh, I can say right off that we'll have to have you on again after that summit to talk about uh, what, what you have learned and what we all should be aware of uh, on the issue of climate. Before we start talking about uh, some of your, your principal areas of interest, uh, if you can tell us a little bit about yourself. You're a doctor, and you worked with the Obama administration and the Trump administration at the U.S. State Department. If you could tell us a little bit about your background in those respects. Thanks, Nick. Yes, I'm a medical doctor uh, trained in public health and preventive medicine, and I've spent a big part of my career working on global health and combating the global HIV uh, pandemic. 
I've done that work from both within inside the government and also as an external advocate, uh, doing advocacy, trying to push uh, the U.S. government and other wealthy governments to take on difficult global challenges. So most recently, as you noted, I worked uh, from 2014 until 2017 in the State Department where I worked on what a team, I led a team called the Data Revolution for Sustainable Development. Uh, the Sustainable Development Agenda is an international agreement of 17 global goals that were agreed to by uh, 193 countries in 2015, including the United States, which committed to these goals, which include ending poverty, ending hunger, health for all, education for all, gender equality, clean water for everyone, protecting the uh, climate and uh, the oceans, peace and security and good governance. So th this uh, sustainable development agenda is bold and transformative, and we were harnessing the capacities of uh, the United States government as well as the private sector to harness data and technology that we all know is changing our lives to address these social challenges. You know, what, what pops out me straight away is uh, working for both the Obama administration and the Trump administration, and the goals for the sustainability development issues uh, seem so idealistic. Uh, have, is there much of a change between how the Obama administration looked at this versus the Trump administration, or is the project going in the same direction at the same rate as it had prior? Uh, I think uh, there are radically different approaches between the two administrations. Um, President Obama uh, mobilized the entire federal government and all its scientific and technical capabilities to help define and shape the sustainable development agenda as well as the Paris Climate Accord. And these two agreements were both agreed to in 2015 and together they created a historic global framework which is being implemented around the world right now. And it is uh, bold and transformative, but the good news is that there are time-bound and measurable goals and targets that were identified for each of those priorities. And so the fact that we can measure progress and we can hold each other accountable for bold action has made this agenda different than prior agreements that have been made at the international level. Uh, the, the other good news is that the private sector, uh, corporations, and civic groups, and faith-based groups around the world, including in the United States, are mobilizing in support of the Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, in terms of the transition between the Obama and Trump administrations, I mean, the Sustainable Development Goals are still being reported on by the uh, Office of Management and Budget. There is a website, um, sdgusa.org which reports on U.S. progress towards these, these goals. Um, however, I would say that uh, the momentum from the federal government uh, is, is tempered now uh, and not as robust. Uh, and as, you, as most people know, uh, the President Trump intends to pull out of the Paris Climate Accord. That being said, there are over 400 cities around the country that are actually fully implementing the Paris Climate Accord, and many are also taking action in support of sustainable development. 
You know, with sustainable development and saying that the robust nature of, of the program under the Obama administration has shifted and not as robust now under the Trump administration, how does that translate into dollars that no longer exist in the budget for the program? Well, I think that the um, policies of the Trump administration have been to focus on tax relief and deregulation and uh, with, the, with an economic theory of uh, letting the private sector be unleashed. And then theoretically, that's going to trickle down and create benefits for everyone equitably. And I think, um, I think there may be ways in which the tax code could, could be modified or and is being modified that are beneficial. And also deregulation is also, uh, there could be uh, regulatory frameworks which are overly uh, constrictive. On the other hand, we know that uh, government has an important role to play to make sure that policies and programs and regulations are set up so that all people, not just the wealthy people, are benefiting from uh, educational opportunities, job opportunities, and uh, the programs that are required to adapt to the new economy. And so I, I think that a lot of those programs are being threatened by the current policy framework. Now, you're with the State Department. Does that mean that uh, most of the U.S. involvement in sustainable development is involving uh, international issues, foreign countries, and so on, or are there domestic programs to make sure that we meet these goals in our own country? Yes, yeah, so I think that the uh, Obama administration had a, what we call a whole-of-government approach. Certainly the State Department played an important role, but the other parts of the federal government, including the Department of Agriculture, the Department of Education, the Department of Justice, were also taking on uh, a review and refining and enhancing their programs to align with the sustainable development goals. For example, the uh, Department of Justice has an initiative called Access to Justice, which was a program that was pioneered here in the U.S. that they were then supporting uptake and replication in countries around the world, including in Africa and Asia. And this is what we call smart power. When uh, we're when we're engaging globally, as we are as a, as a powerful nation, uh, we we can we can influence uh, other countries by partnering with them and helping them succeed in creating winning lives for their populations. And so that's where the Department of Education, the Department of Health, Department of Agriculture, all the assets and capacities of our U.S. federal government, where we were sharing our know-how. And also, frankly, we were learning new ideas and new innovations from around the world that we could apply to challenges here at home. When we think internationally, we think about uh, our being U.S. versions of poverty, health, and gender equality. Uh, how, and we have about a minute for before our first break here, but uh, how does this work with regard to clashing with other cultures, uh, especially with like gender equality and some of the other countries? That, uh, that don't look at uh, the equality between men and women the same as we do here. Was that a problem? I think that all countries are working towards gender equality. 
in our own country, we know that there's still a disparity in pay between men and women. Uh, in Saudi Arabia, they just allowed women to be able to drive. Yes. So people are di- different countries or different places. So the sustainable development goals allow us to have a common framework and a common agenda where every country and every city can be working towards these goals in, in their own way. And then we can compare progress and we can all work together and make faster progress. Well, it, it sounds like it's a, um, a noble set of goals uh, to, to go and make, as they say, the world a better place. Uh, and uh, are there other leading countries that uh, are working along with the United States? There's, I would assume there's some leading countries and some following countries. Uh, who is the, the next best partner we have? Yeah, I mean, I think there are countries in different every region that are leading on the sustainable development goals. So, for example, in the Western Hemisphere, Colombia is really a leading country in terms of restructuring their whole government to align towards uh, action, measurable action for sustainable development. Well, let's hold up on in Africa. Let, let's hold up on Colombia. We'll pick up with Africa. We're going to take a short break. Uh, we're talking to Dr. Paul Zeit, uh, former State Department official and a medical doctor talking about sustainable development. We're going to come back and also talk about climate. Uh, You're listening to Nick Phillips on The Advocate here on WHK. We're going to take a short break. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with our final segment of The Advocate for tonight. We're talking to Dr. Paul Seitz, uh, a medical doctor and State Department um, person. I don't know. We call you uh, Dr. Zeitz. Thank you for joining us again. Uh, do we call you a researcher or a, a program chair? Or what was your title there? Um, at the State Department, I was the director of the Data Revolution for Sustainable Development, and I'm a physician activist. Well, well you have a plenty big global market to be an activist for i just just seeing of all seeing all the problems um we were talking before the break about uh, what are uh, the countries or what type of support do we have who are are our partners in sustainable development uh, you mentioned colombia and you were about to tell us about africa yeah i was saying that there are leading countries in every part of every part of the world so colombia in the latin american region in Africa, I would say that Kenya, South Africa are leading countries. In Asia, there's great progress underway in Indonesia and in India, as well as other countries. Um, and uh, so the global sustainable development is, an, is a global movement where countries around the world, corporations around the world, and civic groups and faith-based groups are all, all mobilizing. I would also say the movement is alive and kicking in the United States where stakeholders in cities and local governments in Orlando, in San Jose, in Los Angeles, and different parts of the United States, Milwaukee, uh, are looking at the sustainable development goals as a way of making progress here at home. Part of the whole formula is climate, and you've been quite active in, in climate issues. Uh, what What is your role, and I know you mentioned you're in California for a uh, summit of some sort. Uh, what is your role and, and what is the, the current meeting about? Yeah, thank you. Uh, there is, in mid-September, September 12th through the 14th, 
the Global Climate Action Summit is, was being held, uh, hosted by Governor Jerry Brown and leaders from around the world to accelerate action to address the climate emergency. I think the scientific community is aligned in understanding that human behavior and human, human uh, carbon emissions have been contributing to the climate crisis. So we're seeing a global warming phenomena, which is uh, changing weather patterns. And we're seeing droughts and fires, and we're seeing severe, more severe hurricanes than ever before in recorded history. Um, and the United States has a unique responsibility. We represent only 5% of the global population, yet we contribute about 30% of greenhouse gas emissions. And so our society is responsible and also has the opportunity to take bold action to address the climate crisis. So uh, California, for example, in September uh, committed to become 100% renewable energy by 2045. In September, the city of Orlando agreed to become 100% renewable, uh, meaning transitioning off of uh, carbon-based uh, energy. So this uh, movement is unstoppable, and I see it as having opportunities for jobs and economic growth here in America. And so I hope your listeners in Ohio and around the country will uh, you know, understand that the climate crisis is actually also filled with opportunities for, you know, for positive economic growth. Well, some, some big concerning uh, climate change. Uh, I, I still am not sure I understand why is there the debate as to whether or not climate change is occurring. Uh, some meteorologists I talk to say the climate is always changing. Uh, the question is, what is the effect of uh, human activity on the planet Earth? What does that have to do with either accelerating or contributing to the change of climate? Um, you're embedded into the scientific community. What what is what is the um, the basis for the disagreement as to whether or not humans are in fact contributing to climate change? If you can answer no, I that think quickly, there's I don't actually know. Actually, very limited debate. Uh, it turns out that about 97% of scientists agree that human uh, use, human behavior, human use of carbon-based fuel has, is contributing significantly to greenhouse gas emissions, which is leading to global climate warming. Only a small percentage uh, of, of scientists doubt that consensus. Now, we know that there are corporate interests that take that slimmer of doubt and blow it up into confusion that is, uh, that is sowed to protect their uh, kind of economic interests, in my view. So the folks that, uh, I'm a scientist, and I believe in data, I believe in evidence, I believe in uh, reviewing uh, actual facts and, and, and making decisions and developing policies and programs based on facts and evidence and science. And so this is throughout human history. There's been a, a battle about whether, you know, how, to, how science should influence our society. So I'm a science-based and an evidence-based uh, person, and I believe that uh, the evidence is clear, and we need to take action to reduce our carbon emissions as fast as possible. 
so that we can uh, mitigate the impact on ourselves and on other people on the planet. Well, we've been witnessing changes in the climate, uh, the shrinkage of the polar caps, uh, uh, more swings in, in the weather patterns that uh, have been, at least there seems to be more swings in the weather patterns. And uh, the question is if um, all the scientists are agreeing that uh, human participation and human activity is contributing to the change in climate, are these climate changes that we're witnessing, are they reversible if there are changes in how humans you know, uh, operate here on the planet Earth? Thanks, that's a great question. And uh, just to mention my, my memoir called Waging Justice, a, a Doctor's Journey to Speak Truth and Be Bold, in that I describe my own journey with facing potential devastations uh, in, our, in our world and I've chosen to be optimistic. And in the case of the climate crisis, I think there is room for optimism. Uh, if people mobilize quickly to accelerate action to reduce carbon emissions, I believe that we can uh, mitigate the worst possible impact. There is an effect already happening, as you noted, with the melting of the polar caps, with global temperatures rising every year, with the intensification of weather crises, uh, and so we're not going to be able to eliminate all the effects. But if we can reduce the amount of carbon that we're emitting, and there are new technologies also being developed to uh, trap carbon and sequester it and reduce it from the atmosphere, and if those technologies can become successful, then we can stabilize the warming trends and, and protect human life and, protect, and live in healthy balance with Earth. But we, this is a wake-up call moment. Where it's like the canary in the coal mine moment, where we have to wake up and hear the the bird and saying, "Act now, change your behavior, change the way you're living," or else I believe that the survivability of the planet is actually at stake. Well, yeah, and we've sort of been hearing that for some time, and that's why I was curious about uh, how reversible is this. If, um, if first off, uh, are the scientists all in agreement that the increase in temperatures and climate change is related to the amount of carbon emissions? And, and if so, if we reduce those dramatically, uh, how long would it take to affect uh, the, the climate? And would that be years, decades, or uh, longer? So I think the good news is that the scientists all agree that humans are contributing to the global warming, and there is a consensus that we, if we take action and we implement climate-smart programs, we transition off of carbon-based fuel into renewable energy, solar, wind, uh, hydropower, even nuclear power some people advocate for, are, are safer and cleaner forms of energy that can reduce the amount of coal, oil, and gas that we are burning. We've only been using fossil fuels for since the 1800s, and it's only been the last couple hundred years. Yeah. And so, but that was also linked to our industrialization and, and the kind of quality of life that we live now. Well, let's so let's I hold it. They, let's hold it at that. Um, I think we're going to have to get you back here to talk about what happens in California at your conference. 
and uh, we'll, we'll get an update. Thank you. Love to come back. Thank you, Dr. Paul Zeitz. Thank you so much. We're gonna. That's it for tonight. We're not taking a break. This is it. Uh, we'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a great week. Good night. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset. Sat and drank my fresh mint tea. With nothing to do until morning. And only my mind accompanied. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com salemnow.com